Einat Wilf is the co-author of the Israeli best-selling book, The War of Return, How Western Indulgence of the Palestinian Dream Has Obstructed the Path to Peace. She is a leading intellectual and original thinker on matters of foreign policy, economics, education, Israel, and Zionism. She was a member of the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, from 2010 to 2013, where she served as the chair of the Education Committee and a member of the Influential Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee. She is considered one of Israel's most articulate representatives on the international stage. In the past, Einat served as a senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute, an adjunct fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and was also a foreign advisor to Vice Prime Minister Shimon Peres. Einat holds a BA from Harvard and a PhD in political science from the University of Cambridge in England. I got on the train from Jerusalem and traveled to Einat's apartment in the boiling Israeli summer sun. Yes, my dear listeners, for you and me, and sat down with Einat in her apartment in Tel Aviv. We discussed her new book about the Palestinians, American Jews, the history of the state of Israel, Zionism, atheism, feminism, the Kotel, Jewish tradition, and much more. I'm Barack Holman, the author of Figure It Out When You Get There, a memoir of stories about living life first and watching how everything falls into place, and a shtickle shalom, a student, his mentor, and their unconventional conversations. And this is Jewish People and Ideas, a podcast of conversations with Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. This episode of Jewish People and Ideas is sponsored by JerusalemEverything.com an online Jerusalem artist cooperative which sells high-quality original Jewish art in Judaica at low-cost prices, all made in Israel and shipped from Jerusalem. To learn more, go to JerusalemEverything.com. In your best-selling book, How Western Indulgence of the Palestinian Dream Has Obstructed the Path to Peace, it argues that we can never live in peace while the Palestinians still hold on to the dream of the right of return to Palestine which would mean the end of the state of Israel. Currently, refugee status is passed down from generation to generation to the Palestinians as if it's an inheritance. And what you're arguing is that the West needs to cancel this absurd situation by convincing the United Nations to cancel UNRWA, which is an organization that simply perpetuates this Palestinian refugee status. Okay, so let's say the West was convinced. Governments in the West convinced the United Nations to cancel UNRWA, But the fact is that the Palestinians still want to destroy the state of Israel. They still want to wipe us off the planet. So what difference would it make? So people uh, change their worldviews, typically under pressure, under duress. They rarely change their worldview, certainly not collectives, because someone wrote a book and made a very compelling argument. So when I look at how the Palestinians will move away from their singular focus on the rejection of the Jewish right to self-determination in any part of the land, I need to look at what happened with other groups, other refugees. Now, uh, the 20th century can be summed up uh, very easily as a major transition politically from empire to nation state. Basically, we start the 20th century when much of the earth is divided between empires, and we end the 20th century when basically the entire earth is divided between nation states. 
a colleague of mine likes to say that if you're not ice or water, you're a nation state at the end of the 20th century. Including the Jews. <laughs> Including the Jews. I mean, the Jews are actually, Zionism and the Jews and the Jewish transition to living in a nation state is very normal. People think Israel is very special. Israel's actually very normal. Uh, the idea of people living in a nation state with national minorities is the standard normal situation at the end of the 20th century. The transition from empire to nation state has been bloody, included two world wars, decolonization, civil wars. And in that bloody process where empires disappeared and nations rose and borders were established and areas were partitioned, people fled. People fled, people were expelled. We are talking about tens of millions of refugees throughout the 20th century, if not more. They're not refugees today. Why? Because the norm, very obviously, was that you move on. The message to all refugees from partitions, whether it is Hindus and Muslims, Koreans, uh, Poles, Ukrainians, Germans, people across Africa, the message to all of them was tough, it's tragic, but move on. The Palestinians are the only ones who, following the end of an empire and a partition, were indulged in their worldview that the war is not over, that they do not have to accept the outcome, that the borders are not final, that, uh, I mean, they're the only ones who are indulged in this worldview for the simple reason, by the way, that at the time, no longer really the case, but at the time, the Arab world was fairly united behind them, very united in its rejection of Zionism, was, had the power of oil. Oil was important to the West, much more uh, than today. There was the Cold War, the beginning of the Cold War, uh, and there was a fear in the West that the, if the Arabs will be angry, they will go to the Soviet Union. All of these things came together to lead to a unique and unparalleled situation where the West was willing to indulge the Palestinians in a worldview where the war is not over, they are still refugees, generation after generation, and they did not get the message that every other refugee group in the world got, which is move on. Now, the reason that I am hopeful that this could change is that all the other refugee groups, when they did get this message, they did move on. Yes, it was sad and they wanted their homes and they wanted to go back. That's natural. That's normal. But when they realized that that was not a possibility, when they realized that no one was indulging them in that, people moved on. So in the book, we tell the story of Ankara, a UN agency established For to Korea. settle the Korean refugees, mm -hmm. a temporary agency like UNRWA. It settled everybody about 2 million refugees who did not go back to their homes north of the 38th parallel line. Uh, and look at where South Korea is today. That could have been the Palestinians. That could have been the Arabs. The Germans were not indulged in their worldview that, you know, Poland or half of Poland belongs to them, not the Poles, not the Ukrainians, the Hindus, the, the Pakistanis, the Muslims in India and Pakistan. That's it. It's over. Everybody moved on. Also the Jews, by the way. And of course the Jews. Jews of Europe were, and the Jews of the Muslim countries. Exactly. Nearly a million were expelled, not to talk about Europe. They've moved on. They've built new lives. This is the norm throughout the 20th century. There is no reason to give the Palestinians an exception. 
And the optimism I draw is that once pa- once refugees were given the message of move on, they've moved on. Except for the Palestinians. Because they were never given that message. Mm-hmm. I have a quote from the first chapter of your book. This is from Yasser Arafat. Historians may search, but they will not find any nation subjugated to as much torture as ours. To me, that's just an incredible quote. The Palestinians feel like they're uniquely persecuted and that Israel is uniquely evil and therefore compromise is impossible. They feel like they have a unique status as a persecuted people. Yes, one of the things that we tell in the book is really the way that the Palestinian national consciousness was shaped and built in the refugee camps. One of the biggest mistakes that is still made is the notion that UNRWA is somehow a neutral organization. You know, it has the letters UN in its name. People think, okay, it just provides uh, schooling and healthcare. And one of the things that we show in the book, which was also for us a dramatic realization, that the entire Palestinian collective national consciousness was really born and shaped and formed in the refugee camps. This is really the moment that you can say that a Palestinian nation is born. Because uh, everyone knows that the connection between schooling and nationalism, that's nationalism 101. Which in itself is, is not wrong. I mean, there's nothing wrong about a nation being born in schools. Most of the nations of the 20th century are creations of the 20th century. So there's nothing wrong with being a young nation. There's nothing wrong with the Palestinians being a new and a young nation. The problem is, is that the kind of national consciousness which is shaped in the refugee camps is one that is uniquely focused on revenge and return. And the whole tale, the whole story that is being created in the schools of UNRWA in the refugee camps is one in which the Palestinians are unique victims in world history rather than refugees at the end of empires and partitions like tens of millions of others, that they have uniquely suffered a grave injustice unparalleled anywhere in history and in the world, and that therefore, to pursue justice, they have to undo the evil, the injustice, which is the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. And this carries till today. Till today, uh, on campuses, the organizations for Palestinians are called Students for Justice in Palestine. They're not called Students for an Independent Palestinian State. They're not called Students for a specific purpose. They're called Students for Justice. Now, for most people in the West, this seems benign, right? Who can be against justice? Unless you understand that in the Palestinian understanding of history, The attainment of justice requires the correction of the injustice, which is the very existence of the state of Israel, in their view. So it's a very annihilationist, you know, revenge form of justice. And this is what they mean. And this is the kind of worldview that developed in the UNRWA schools and the refugee camps. You know, one of the things that amazes me is that there's still refugee camps in Gaza. This is something that I wanted to mention later on. I grew up in the reform movement. I grew up your typical, like when you see birthright students, even though there was no birthright when I was in college, mm-hmm. I was like a birthright student. I knew nothing about Israel. I was a very committed reform Jew, but didn't know much about Judaism. And I came here very innocent, believing I came here in 1994. So Oslo had just been signed. 
And I was also studying Islam in the university. I studied, I didn't finish the PhD at the Hebrew U because it went on forever, but that's where I was studying. When it came to the withdrawal from Gaza, I was all for it. So this makes sense. Yep. The Palestinians say they want to live in peace. I believe it. Now, you see, I, I'm a religious Jew and I'm married to a religious Jew from a Zionist family and they thought I was out of my mind. Everyone I knew thought I was out of my mind because I supported the left. I voted for labor. Then I said to myself, wait a minute, we left Gaza. First of all, all the missiles, fine. War and, and a big mess. I think it was a big mistake in retrospect. Not that it was such a great thing that people were living there, but we, it's like we didn't get what we wanted. But there's still refugee camps in Gaza. Why are there refugee camps in Gaza? Where are they going to? You're in Gaza. You're in Palestine. Close the refugee camps. Precisely. I mean, to really understand the absurdity of the whole notion of calling Palestinian refugees, to understand really the distance from real refugees to their situation, we really need to parse out the absurdity of it all. Because in the mindset of Palestinians, the refugee issue, their so-called right of return, is by far the most important issue. Everything is subservient to that. But in practice, the refugee issue is actually very small because they're not refugees. UNRWA registers five and a half million refugees today. 40% of them, 2.2 million, live in Gaza and the West Bank. By the way, most of them do not live in refugee camps. 75% don't live in refugee camps. In Gaza, 50% don't. But they're still registered as refugees. And like you said, they live in Gaza. They live in the West Bank. They live in Ramallah under the Palestinian Authority. As we speak, Palestinians born in Gaza and Ramallah are being registered as refugees from Palestine Mm. more than 70 years after the war ended. And you're right. Where exactly are they refugee from? I mean, certainly by their telling, they live in Palestine. Ramallah is in Palestine. Gaza is in Palestine. Why are they still registered as refugees? And you're right. Why are there still actual refugee camps? Which, by the way, they're not refugee camps the way you imagine refugee camps with tents and people open to the winds. They're by now anywhere between neighborhoods to slums, but they're, they're permanent places. Now, Palestinians know where they're refugee from. They're refugees from Palestine, from the river to the sea. Someone who lives in Ramallah, in their worldview, they are going to return to what is the state of Israel. The fact that they were born in Gaza or born in Ramallah makes them no less a refugee from Palestine in their worldview. By the way, this is the way to understand Gaza. Nothing else matters. Once you understand that nearly 80% of the inhabitants of Gaza are registered as refugees and in their mindset they're refugees, you understand everything. Because they don't want to make Gaza the Singapore of the Middle East. They don't want to make it a Dubai. Because as far as they're concerned, Gaza is not home. Even though by now they're into the fifth generation of living in Gaza, in their mindset, it's still a temporary place from which they will one day take their real home. So they don't want to invest in it. They don't want to build it. They want to take back in their mind what is their real home, Palestine from the river to the sea. So 40% live in Ramallah, in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Gaza. They're not actually refugees. Another 40% are citizens of Jordan. Jordan naturalized them when they annexed the West Bank, saying basically this is it. 
They're now again, fourth, fifth generation of naturalized Jordanian citizens or subjects. Nowhere in the world is a citizen of a country, a refugee from another country in which he's never been. So they're not actually refugees. And then the remaining million, the remaining 20% who are registered in Syria and Lebanon, about half and half, we by now have data from census that then most of them no longer live there. They've become citizens of Germany and Sweden and the US. They no longer live there. So they're not refugees. At most, the actual number of refugees would be 20, 30,000 of the original refugees who fled to Lebanon and Syria. In 1948. Yes. And maybe 200, 300,000 of their descendants who still live there and are stateless. And these are the kinds of numbers that you can actually uh, settle. When you look at other refugee numbers in the world, and we tell of stories of uh, those from Bhutan and Nepal, and like 200,000, 300,000 could be settled either in Syria or Lebanon or in third countries, and that's it. So the actual practical extent of the Palestinian refugee problem is very small, but in terms of the mindset and the ideology, it's the biggest issue. It's everything. It's everything. What is West Planning? So West Planning is a word I invented based on the word mansplaining, which basically has the same idea, this uh, kind of paternalistic worldview that tells someone else, whether it is a woman or a Palestinian, what they actually think or what they mean to say or what they should think. So one of the things that I think was very important to a DNI throughout the book is that the book gives Palestinians the respect of listening to what they're saying. Much of the book is about their voices, their documents, and they're very clear about it. One of the things that we see throughout the book is that they're very consistent. So we had to explain to ourselves, how is it that so many in the West, and certainly for many years in the Israeli peace camp, believed that the issue of the refugees or return was not a major issue, that it was, uh, that's a very common worldview, that it's a bargaining chip that would be bargained away when the Palestinians get a proper proposal for real important issues like territory, like a state. By now, of course, it's no longer, I think, a legitimate worldview because they could have bargained it and what they did was bargain away the state in order to keep fighting for return. So by now we know it's not a bargaining chip, but that's still a very dominant worldview, certainly among Western journalists and diplomats. So I've invented the word Westplaining to describe the attitude of Western diplomats and journalists when they explain away what Palestinians have just said. So Palestinians will say, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Sometimes I add in parentheses of Jews. Um, <laughs> you do or they do? I do. Well, they just uh, keep it there, but right. I think that's the intention. So they say, they tell you the right of return is holy. It's sacred. I mean, it's neither a right nor a return, and it's not holy, it's not sacred, but to them it is. So they say all of these things, and then you listen to Western journalists and diplomats who tell you things like, ah, it's a delusion. They know it's not going to happen. It's a bargaining chip. They're just saying that. 
And at one point, I mean, at DNI, we have many meetings with Western diplomats and journalists, and we have to tell them, look, they really mean it. And if you look at their actions throughout their decades, their actions are consistent with their words. So there's every reason to listen to them. Sometimes I even add and I say, look, it's not a delusion from their perspective. It's a rational worldview. They open the map, they count. They say, okay, 7 million Jews living among nearly half a million Arabs. Half a billion. Half a billion, sorry, half a billion Arabs, one and a half billion Muslims. They rationally conclude that the Zionist experiment will not last long. This is so... Their worldview, which says with enough patience and resistance, the land will revert in their worldview to back to us, is rational. And they have historical precedent for it. Yes, the Crusades. The Crusaders, this is one of the reasons they call Israel the second Crusader state. Still the dominant worldview in the Arab world. In some places, it's beginning to change. But the dominant worldview in the uh, Arab world, certainly among Palestinians, is that Israel is a temporary aberration in the Arab and Islamic history of the region since the 7th century. So when Europeans and Westerners West Plain, the Palestinians, I think it almost betrays a neocolonial worldview that kind of says they're not historical agents. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're fighting for. We know what they actually want. And I think, again, one of the things I really love about our book is that it really gives Palestinians the respect of listening to what they're saying and taking them seriously. That's it, taking them seriously. Yeah. So I think if an American Jew, I'm sure I know there are many American Jews that listen to this podcast, they listen to how you're speaking. They know that you were in the Labor Party. They know that you're a liberal. And I'm going to get to feminism and atheism. <laughs> Bezat Hashem. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So they might be confused. How can you be such a liberal and such a committed nationalist? They seem to contradict one another. So first of all, it's a very American worldview. Americans, not just American Jews, don't get nations. The America is exceptional, at least in its aspiration, not always the reality, but in its aspiration to be a post-national society. But the rest of the world is not. The rest of the world, as I said, because of the transition throughout the 20th century, is divided into nation states. And nationalism, to remind people, was the liberal cause. The idea of how people can be free, can be equal, was based on the notion that they will live in their own nation state. That was the path to equality, to human rights. This is why I'm still very much a committed Zionist. I believe that Jewish human rights and all human rights depend on people having political rights, on people having the ability to control their fate. But I am very much a liberal, first of all, on all issues that you would call on the liberal agenda, from feminism to atheism to LGBTQ rights to all of these issues. I'm very much out there to legalizing marijuana, whatever it is, I'm out there uh, very much a liberal, very much on the left. And I do believe that Zionism is a liberal cause. But being a liberal does not mean that you do not wrestle with reality. And I've wrestled with reality. Up until 2000, like many people, I believed that Palestinians want a nation state of their own. 
that the Palestinians are the equivalent of all other people in the world who want self-determination in a piece of land. And I think I, like many people, projected on them that this is what they want. And that once they were given the opportunity to have a Palestinian nation state in the land, they will forgo the maximalist vision of from the river to the sea. But when that didn't happen, and I experienced it, it's not just, okay, it didn't happen in 1947. You're like, okay, fine, old history. But it happened in 2000. I lived through it. I lived through the hope, through the euphoria. It happened in 2008. Whether under Barack or under Olmert, Palestinians got clear opportunities to have a Palestinian state of their own in the West Bank and Gaza with capital in East Jerusalem, no settlements in sight, end of the occupation, everything we're told that is the problem, and they walked away. And not only do they wa- did they walk away, it was followed by bloody mayhem in our streets, just massacres of families. And I and Adi and many Israelis went back to the drawing board and said, okay, Clearly, the Palestinians don't want a state because they could have had it and they walked away. Sometimes things are simple. You know, there's so many books were written on Camp David were actually just marking 20 years to the negotiations between Ehud Barak and Yasser Arafat and Camp David. So many books were written explaining that Barak was not nice to Arafat and he, and he talked too much with Chelsea Clinton over dinner and And at one point, you have to just brush away all the noise and say, a people who want a state, when they can have a state, they say, oh no, because Barack spoke to Chelsea Clinton over dinner, we'll forgo our state. No, a people who want a state, when they can have a state, they take the state. Sometimes things are really that simple. So if the Palestinians repeatedly do not take advantage of opportunities to have a state of their own in part of the land, we had to ask, what then do they want? And that's where the the book is, the outcome. They want all of it. They still want all of it. And as I said, when they look at the region, at the half a billion Arabs and one and a half billion Muslims, they rationally conclude that one day they will have all of it. So why compromise? So how, and I'm including myself in this question, how are we so naive? Right, we're intelligent people, educated people that read and understand and synthesize information. And here we're, we're living here and we're looking at the Palestinians. And I truly, honestly believed that in 2000, that was it. 2008 for sure. Yep. And I say Yasser Arafat turned me into a right winger. He turned many. It, it, that, it took him. It wasn't, the bus bombings weren't enough. Yeah. And I was living in Jerusalem with the bus bombings. I saw two of them in front of my own eyes. I still left winger. Yeah. It was when they came to that realization. How could we be so naive? So it was a combination of a few things. First of all, now we can look back at the 90s and say, how are we so naive? But a lot of people forget the global atmosphere of the 1990s. Everything was possible in the 90s. The Soviet Union just collapsed like a house of cards. You know, it's something that the day before seemed impossible. And the day after, everyone said it was inevitable. But it happened. In Eastern Europe, I'm sure you remember the images. Mm-hmm. The, the people Berlin of Wall. Eastern, yeah, the people of Eastern Europe are becoming free. The Berlin Wall is coming down. Apartheid in South Africa came to an end. 
Northern Ireland signed the Good Friday Agreement. The 1990s, there was a decade in which there was a feeling that the world is taking care of business. Everything is being resolved. So in that spirit, it made sense that, yes, we are going to put our conflict behind us as well. The vision of the new Middle East of Shimon Peres was very much in tune with the spirit of the 1990s. Now it's easy to mock it. But at the time, it was very much the spirit of the 90s. Everything that was impossible the day before became inevitable. So why not us? So that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. The other part, which we also detail in the book, is once the Soviet Union collapsed, the Palestinians turned to the U.S. for support. Got it. When they turned to the U.S. for support, they didn't change their overall goal, but they did change their language. They began to speak more of rights and justice and self-determination and things that sounded moderate to the Western ear without ever actually giving up on their goal. There's no language that they ever use that says that they understand that the Jewish people are here to stay and that the Jewish people are equal claimants to the land, have the right to self-determination. All the things that we interpreted as them saying that on closer inspection, and in the book we do that closer inspection, were never that. And of course, the last thing is that at the end of the day, the Jews are a tiny, 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 I cannot say tiny enough, minority in an Arab and Islamic Middle East. To the credit of Arabs and Muslims, ever since the 7th century conquests, they did really well. This is an Arab and Islamic region. And as long as there's Arab and Islam and Arab identity Islam, it will be an Arab and Islamic region, which means that the Jews are a minority in this region and are destined to remain a minority. One of my favorite figures, I sometimes use it in my talks, I say, okay, when Israel declares independence in 1948, what is the ratio of Jews to Arabs in the region? So it's one to 50, five zero. What do the Jews do? recognizing their status as a minority, they call upon Jews to immigrate. Great success. Over 3 million Jews come. Thank you to you too. (laughs) Great success. We make babies, right? Israel is the most productive in terms of babies out of all the Western countries. Great. We are more than 10 times our numbers today. What is the ratio of Jews to Arabs in the region? One to 48. One to 60. So they've been busy too. There is no amount of procreation or immigration that will ever get us out of our minority status in the region. That is our destiny. Recognizing that, we are desperate for peace and recognition. Truly desperate. This is why I am driven mad by the notions of Israelis don't want peace. Israelis have moved to the right. Sometimes I do this kind of evocative thought experiment when people tell me Israel has moved to the right. Tell them, you know what? Let's imagine that the king of Saudi comes to the Knesset. He does a sadat. He brings with them the king of Morocco and the king of Jordan. And they come to the Israeli Knesset and they tell the people of Israel and the Jewish people, we are here in the name of Islam and the Arab world to tell you that it's over. We will no longer fight you. Yes, you've had a crazy story that you're coming home after 2000 years, but it is, you belong here. It's your home. So we are here to tell you, welcome home. But you know what? Rechelim Gimel, a settlement. You got to get out, guys. 
Even settlers to whom I do this thought experiment tell me, we know everyone's out in a minute. Of course, Israelis, if they are given the prospect of true peace with the Arab world, with the Islamic world, and the price of that will be the settlements, the West Bank. So we are so desperate for peace. I sometimes compare us to a teenager who gets a message that barely says a word and he says, she loves me. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we hang on to the most meager of declarations because we are so desperate for peace and acceptance in this region. We are tired. We are exhausted. The vision of, you know, of always having to live on our sword is exhausting. We want to believe that it can be over. And in the 90s, in that spirit of putting everything to the end and the Palestinians changing their discourse, if not their intentions, and us being so desperate for peace, all of these things came together for us to push away everything that did not fit with our deep desire that this was going to be over. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I needed to hear that for myself personally, because <laughs> I was confused, and uh, that, that brings things together. When David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of the state of Israel, was asked by the British Peel Commission in 1937 to identify the basis of the Jewish claim to Israel, which was back then Mandate Palestine, run by the British, Ben-Gurion replied, the Tanakh, the Bible, is our mandate. You've mentioned many times in your talks, and you mentioned here already in this podcast, that you're an atheist. Yes. So what gives us the right to live here in Israel if it's not for God's promise to us in the Tanakh? So often people uh, are fascinated by the fact that I'm an atheist and very Jewish and very much committed to the Jewish people and uh, and a Zionist. Uh, Recently, when Karl Reiner passed away, Rabbi Walpi said a joke that when uh, they celebrated his 90th birthday, Rabbi Walpi mentioned that Karl Reiner is an atheist. So Karl uh, ran to the podium and said, but a Jewish atheist, it's very different. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that's me. So here I uh, typically uh, use another Jewish atheist, Yuval Noah Harari. He talks about human beings as storytellers. Homo sapiens is basically storytellers. He talks about it, the intersubjective reality. We inhabit the stories that we tell. God is a story. So I do not deny that we have told a story about God. It's a very powerful story, but it's a story created by Homo sapiens. It's not an actual objective presence out there. So I am part of the Jewish story. I view myself very much part of the Jewish story. In the 20th and the 21st century, I no longer need to believe that the story of God that we created is an actual being, but I am very much aware of being part of that story. So for me, what matters is not that God promised the land. What matters is that a people told a story about God promising the land. They've acted on that story. They've created beautiful literature based on that story. They've maintained themselves as a people based on that story. And I am part of that people. And part of the story. And I am part of the story. It just no longer requires the belief in a supernatural being. 
uh, but I do not chuck the story. You know, sometimes when I speak about continuing to be a person who works towards peace, but now understanding that it's going to take much longer, I often quote Chazal. Our sages of lesson. Yeah, memory. our sages that you will not, you might not finish the job, but it doesn't mean that you get a pass not to do it. And sometimes when I do that, people say, how can you quote Chazal and be an atheist? And I'm like, last time I checked, they were people. <laughs> so uh, They were part of the story. They were part of the story. So I think a lot of people mistake atheism for cutting yourself loose from any sense of community or storytelling or heritage or, or civilization identity. or identity. Not at all. This is the Karl Reiner, but I'm a Jewish atheist. I'm very much part of that identity. By the way, when I give talks to people who come east of Israel, China, India, they have no problem uh, with that notion. I was once in a conference and I mentioned that I'm very Jewish and very atheist. And someone who was sitting next to me in a panel who was Hindu, he said, that works for me. I'm very Hindu and very atheist. Interesting. So um, it works. And I'm part of that story. And I think a lot of people mistake atheism for throwing away all of that. No. I keep all of that just with the 21st century knowledge that it's our story. It's a story created by human beings rather than the creation of an outside uh, entity. That, that, that's a good explanation. And that leads into the next question. Many Reform and conservative rabbis have stated that their status at the Kotel is more important to them than their relationship with the state of Israel. What are your thoughts about the Kotel? Which I already know what they are, but... <laughs> I want it recorded. <laughs> so um, quite a few years ago, when it was at the height of one of the women of the Kotel issues, I gave a talk at a conservative synagogue. And they asked me at the end, it was like, how is it that being a feminist, you do not mobilize for the women of the Kotel? And I told them, look, in my kind of identity in Israel, I'm, all, I'm not just a feminist, I'm an atheist. And I can't tell you how alien it is to me, the notion that, you know, prayer at the Kotel, that, that God resides at the Kotel more than anywhere else. He resides nowhere, but he certainly does not reside in the Kotel more than anywhere else. They were horrified by my response. And I was shocked that they were shocked because it showed me the cross purposes that we're speaking at, because in Israel, liberals, by and large, are not going to be very religious and not going to care much for religion. So they're, they're not going to really understand this desire to like for prayer. But I do agree that I hate the fact that the Kotel has become a synagogue. I think it is, to go back to the other question, uh, it is a historical site of the Jewish people. And I think it should be marked and celebrated as such. If people want to pray, they can have their little synagogue on the side, but I don't see why the majority of the Kotel should be a synagogue. It should be an open place for anyone to respect it as they see fit. I hate the fact that it's an Orthodox synagogue, but I admit that in terms of my priorities, because the battle is about prayer, it's one that is alien to me. You never pray? Um, no. You never say, I, I don't know, this is completely going off the script here. <laughs> I, I'm just curious because I, I decided as a teenager that I was an atheist. Yeah. 
<laughs> First, I was going to be a reform rabbi, and then I'm like, wait, God doesn't exist. This is all crazy. And I actually have a story in the, in the book that I gave you mm-hmm. where I talk about how being an atheist convinced me to become a chassid. Okay. And the general logic was, okay, I'm an atheist and I want to be moral. I'm not going to stab someone in the street or steal. I want to live within the social contract. Mm-hmm. But if I'm an atheist, then nothing that I do really matters because I'm going to die and be warm meat and just live my life and enjoy it as much as I can. And that's what really matters. That's how I looked at it. Not defining your atheism. Yeah, it's actually not. I mean, you're right that this is a typical conclusion of many from atheism, but it's not the obvious or natural or logical conclusion. There's no direct role between I'm an atheist and nothing matters. That, w- that was my feeling. Yeah. So I felt, I felt a hole. Mm-hmm. And I looked around and I said, well, if my goal is to be a happy person, who are the happiest people? And they were all religious people. That's <laughs> true. So I decided, okay, I'm going to have to suck it up and swallow <laughs> that I'm going to have to have a relationship with God who I don't believe exists. And I think it's like you said, a big story and just basically people holding on to something. Yep. And I, it took me really over 20 years of really working on it till I got rid of any doubt. <laughs> it's like we're really sitting on opposite sides of the table here. <laughs> And it really took a long time. Like, why does it matter if I turn a light on or off on Shabbos? Does God really care? Is God even there? And I remember really struggling this for such a long time. But eventually, I got to the point where I found a relationship with God. Yeah. There's a famous quote from the Kotzka Rebbe, where somebody asked him, where is God? You might know this. Mm -hmm. And he said, wherever you let him in. Mm -hmm. And that's how I looked at it. And I figured, well, if I'm wrong, so I'm wrong. And if I'm right, I lived a happier life for me. So I I do pray. I ask God for all kinds of things. Get me on the train. Help me find a bus. Help me find a knot's apartment. Help me get a hold of a knot. Like even down to the smallest thing. And of course, big things, you know, Hashem, get rid of Corona, this crazy nonsense, and let's get back to living our lives. And I don't even know where I'm going with that. I just wanted to mention that. Okay. Well, while we're talking about that, I do have a question. About Jewish tradition. So you mentioned how your Jewish identity is being part of the Jewish story. Yes. Without God and halacha, that necessarily affecting your life, even though you're willing to dip into the toolbox Mm -hmm. and pull out the tools whenever they work for you. Do you keep any Jewish traditions? Do you like candles Friday night? No. But again, as an Israeli, Jewish life is in the air. When this whole Kotel thing, I wrote a series of essays for the forward, because a lot of people responded by saying, where's your Jewish identity? Where's your Jewish identity? And, and I had to tell them, I don't know where to stick more Jewish identity in my life. Because when you live in Israel, and certainly for me, where my whole professional life is telling the story of Israel, Zionism, the Jewish people, I live and write and think and talk about what it means to be Jewish. I read Jewish history. My children go to the Israeli education system, which works entirely around the Hebrew calendar. Every holiday when my kids were in kindergarten, they come back with paper mache's of the relevant holiday. And of course, we celebrate the holidays in our own way, but we celebrate the holidays. We mark the Jewish calendar. So I live the rhythm of Jewish life, but I do not generally actively do halachic rituals. 
but also here, the line is not so simple to define. I, I have this whole talk that I really love to give on what is a Jewish state and what is Judaism in general. And I give people the idea of Passover. Passover is clearly the most widely observed Jewish uh, ritual. Generally, if you do not observe any kind of Passover, you've probably checked out of the Jewish people. So that is the most widely observed, by the way, because it's a storytelling holiday. With props. With props, yes. But, but it goes to the essence of who we are as a people, as a storytelling people. Among storytelling homo sapiens, we're especially a storytelling people. And our key holiday is a storytelling holiday. Now, I celebrate the Passover. We read parts of the Haggadah. We have a play. Now, I consider it part of the national story of the Jewish people. This is when we are born as a nation. My next door neighbor will celebrate Passover and think of it as carrying out a religious duty. But we're both celebrating Passover. So also the notion of where do you draw the line? My Shabbat, I do not disconnect everything, but they're very slow. I generally don't do anything. And But again, it's not halacha. I kind of, I ease on Shabbat. So the line, I think, is not drawn so neatly. I do not purposefully uh, carry out Jewish rituals. Of course, we have our Friday night dinner. The family, the family dinner is on Friday night. So it's part of my life. It's part of my rhythm. It's in the air. But I certainly don't kind of halachically go out of my way to carry out mitzvahs. This might be too personal of a question <laughs> that I'm going to ask you. And if you're uncomfortable, just sure. don't answer it. Did you give your son a brit milah? Yes, I did. Yes. Why? <sighs> it's mostly in the one of these things. Uh, we debated it, by the way. Ultimately, the, the overwhelming decision was that we don't want him to be different and we don't want him to have to explain. And basically, I know it sounds tough, but the easiest route out was to go with the flow. Family pressure, societal pressure? No, there was no family pressure. I mean, we, we were considering it as a family, but, but just as like... So you won't stick out. Exactly. Just as a side note, I met a guy who had three boys. He yeah. didn't give any of them a brit milah. Yeah. They're now teenagers, and he became a bal tshuva. <laughs> and he cannot get over what he did to his sons yeah. because he said, my sons are not part of the Jewish people halachically. Mm-hmm. So they have a brit milah. Now they're old enough that they have to figure it out for themselves. So mm-hmm. however you look at it, yeah. you did a nice thing for your son. No, I think so. I think it up. was the right choice. I think, uh, I think it was the right choice, especially because I am committed to the Jewish people. They live in Israel. They are Jews. They, I raise them Zionists. I mean, my son is beginning to have political consciousness. I'm clearly raising him as a Zionist. So, yeah, so I really didn't see in the choices. It would have been a choice either way. It would have been, and this was in many ways the easier choice. I like this idea of the Jewish story. It really brings things together. It makes things clearer. As an outspoken feminist, so feminism has has now gone from rights for women to defending the weak and the oppressed. No, it's still about rights for women. Just rights for women. Rights for women, equality for women, creating a world that is uh, safe for, for women. I mean... So I've heard the claim that you can't be a Zionist and a feminist at the same time. And my understanding is that the reason you can't is because Zionism is a nationalist movement that oppresses a weak people. 
So how would you answer somebody who says you can't be a feminist and a Zionist? Okay, so first of all, it's a bunch of rubbish to begin with feminism. People who define feminism in this way, they're not doing it about feminism. They're doing it to exclude Jews. It's not about feminism. Never has been. Of course, feminism and Zionism are compatible. Uh, I've written about it. I've written not only about the fact that they're compatible, they are literally movements that have the same trajectory. They both emerge from Enlightenment ideas, that Jews and women have equal rights, not just individually, but also collectively. They both challenge long-established power structures and long-established civilizations that have a particular role for a woman and a particular role for a Jew. They challenge that role. They refuse to play that role, and they suffer backlash as a result of refusing to play that role. It's the same trajectory. So for me, those are identities are linked together. So when you know the heads of the Women's March tried to exclude Zionists, it was clear to me that this is not about feminism. This was about excluding Jews under the supposedly respectable guise of, uh, of rejecting Zionism. It has nothing to do with feminism. Got it. I actually live very close to the Knesset, mm-hmm. probably a 10-minute walk. Yeah. I live in Nachlaut. Yeah. You know Jerusalem because you yes. grew up there. Yeah. You grew up in a boring neighborhood. <laughs> I did. My kids are growing up in the most interesting neighborhood. Yeah, Nachlaut is interesting. So I always wonder, how much influence does a member of Knesset actually have? Because as just a regular citizen, we have no influence at all. The government doesn't seem to care very much about us. You, here you are in Knesset. You get a voice. You get a vote. How much influence do you actually have? So you have... Both more and less than what you think. When I look at the things that I was able to do in education, in uh, the constant uh, issues that are relating to the Israeli economy and the concentration of wealth, they were dramatic. But at the end of the day, they also operated against other forces. So even as a member of Knesset, you're only one of many and other forces. And the ability to have impact is also depending on so many factors. You might get lucky and suddenly it will work. And I mean, one of uh, the reasons I had the ability to have impact with my ideas and the concentration of wealth is that six months into my promoting them, you had the biggest social protests. protests. And that changed the narrative, that changed the conversation. The fact that I wrote a book on education and ultimately was able to become chair of the education committee, even if only for a few months, that was a fluke. I mean, if you look at how politics works. But for those few months, I was able to have a lot of impact in the direction that I wanted on education. In some instances, it's much more. And in many instances, it's much less. And sometimes I compare being in politics like an ancient Greek curse. I say, it's as if the Greek gods, also a story, by the way, but it's as if the Greek gods tell you, okay, when you become a politician, we'll give you a megaphone. So your voice will be louder than almost everyone else's. But the curse is that nothing that comes out of that megaphone will bear any resemblance to anything you actually said. Now, do you want the megaphone? And that's also one of the very frustrating things about politics, especially for someone like myself, who's a thinker. You know, you, you want to have serious, interesting, sometimes original thoughts in the public sphere. And when it gets through that megaphone, it becomes ridiculous, stupid, and it's tough. 
So how do you look at the Knesset now after not being in it for, what, seven years? I still have tremendous respect for the Knesset. I know how different it is. The megaphone, I know how different the reflection of the Knesset in the media is from the actual hardworking reality of most members of Knesset, their dedication. And if we are talking about the Kotel, then for me, this is Habayit Shlishi. This is the third the temple, the Knesset, absolutely. I think it's also correct. The temple ultimately was about politics, not just ritual. This is our sovereignty. This is our third sovereignty. This is where it resides. And um, so I still have tremendous respect for that place. Imagine you had a giant billboard that millions of Jews would stop for a few seconds and read a message on the billboard. What message would you put on your billboard? Oh, so I would use uh, my message uh, about uh, what it means to be a Jew and uh, what is the Jewish state. So uh, I have two definitions. The first is not mine and the second is mine. The first one is that a Jew, to the question, who is a Jew? is a Jew is a person who gets together with other Jews to discuss the question of who is a Jew. And uh, (laughs) by far my favorite definition, not mine. But based on that, I created my definition of the Jewish state, which is the Jewish state is the one state in the world where we get to argue about what it means to be the Jewish state. So I would put on this billboard and then I would end it with an invitation to be part of the argument. But this is, is, in my view, this is how we're Jewish, part of the argument. So what's the message on the billboard? Like in one sentence. The message is, be part of the argument. Enat, thank you very much. This is great. I've had a great time. This was was fun. Thank you. That was Enat Wilf, former Knesset member and author of the best-selling Israeli book, The War of Return. I enjoyed that interview so much with Enat. I really think of all the interviews I've done so far, this was one of my favorites, but I think I always say it at the end of an interview. Thank you for listening, my sweetest friends. Remember to check out my other podcast, The Hasidic Story Project, which can be found by searching on iTunes or Google Podcasts for my name, Barak Holman, B-A-R-A-K-H-U-L-L-M-A-N. You can also find my memoirs of wonderful stories on Amazon by searching for my name there. And if you listen to this podcast and you want to reach out to me, just send me a friend request or a message on Facebook, and I'll be happy to connect with you. I'm always so happy to hear from listeners. Lately, I've heard from listeners all around the world, and it really warms my heart. Thank you so much for listening, and a special thank you to all of the supporters of this podcast. Thank you for your financial support and your emotional support. To become a supporter of my podcasts, go to HasidicStory.com. H-A-S-I-D-I-C story.com and you'll see a link there to become a supporter. It's for both the podcasts and any support is appreciated, even $5 a month. Please make sure to share this podcast with your friends, leave a review wherever you listen, and I look forward to our next conversation together.